morning, everyone. This is Kathy Mason from Mason Works Marketing here on Conscious Business Zone with my friend, Kelvin Chin. Hi, Kel. Hey, Kathy. I'm so excited to have you here. So many cool questions to ask. And I, I always feel like you're my teacher. So it's okay if you correct me. I'll live. I won't be wounded. <laughs> but, but I'm imagining you will. So, so you guys, if you don't know Kelvin, you want to know Kelvin, and I'm going to show you some of his work. This is the first book that I read of his that's called Overcoming the Fear of Death. And I met Kelvin through the IONS group, which is the International Association for Near-Death Studies, because I've been a, a volunteer for over six years now. Then this is the second book that I read of Kelvin's, which is Marcus Aurelius updated. And we'll be talking about how Kelvin could write this book. <laughs> as a, and then this is the next book that his daughter did the cover for after the afterlife, which Kelvin said was the hardest book to write because he went through his life. So, so at, Everyone, so you understand, Kelvin is a remarkable man. He worked with Maharishi when Maharishi came to the U.S. And Kelvin learned TM before he was 20 years old and then was assigned abroad responsibilities in that organization. So, Kel, why don't we start with... So the people that don't know you, if you wouldn't mind giving them a little insight into your journey of awakening to what's in all these books, and then we'll we'll go from there. Okay. Sure. Sure. So um, yeah, I grew up in. I was born in Boston, Massachusetts. Grew up in suburb there. Uh, had a very um, usual, I guess, childhood. Not unusual. Although my aunts told me when I was a teenager that I used to talk to angels when I was two or three years old at my grandparents' house in the living room. When I was the, uh, at that point, I was the first and only grandchild out of eventually 19 on my mom's side, but um, 19 grandchildren. But um, I don't remember that. So um, I, I only know because several of my aunts told me that I used to talk to my invisible angel friends and tell them about it. But um, so so when I was a teenager, I was very stressed out. As Kathy said, I learned to meditate when I was 19 years old. And I was at uh, up in New Hampshire going to college at Dartmouth and was very, very stressed out. And that's why I learned to meditate. I didn't learn to get into the spiritual stuff that we're going to talk about today. That's not wasn't how I rolled. I mean, I was into science. I was pre-med at the time, et cetera, et cetera. And I studied personally with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi uh, a couple of years later, a few years later, and again, I became a leader in his, international leader in his organization, traveled around the world, taught meditation, taught the first meditation courses in the history of the U.S. Army, uh, in Korea, on all the Army bases, and then the, all the U.S. Air Force bases, was on the DMZ, the Demilitarized Zone, teaching meditation many times to soldiers there. This was in the 1970s. I also taught the first meditation courses um, in the history of West Point Military Academy in New York in 1974. Um, 
January to uh, May 1974, before I went to Asia um, to teach meditation. A about uh, the mid-late 1970s, actually in 1977, uh, my past life memory started opening up. I didn't even re re I didn't even believe in reincarnation. It wasn't part of my belief system. I used to kind of Mm, I guess politely but snidely <laughs> be a jerk and uh, um, kind of snicker at people who talked about reincarnation uh, in different um, groups that I would, you know, walk by and so forth at some of these meditation retreats. Um, yeah, but I started having my own experiences. And then in the mid-1980s, I started opening up to the other side, 1986, got communications from the other side. Uh, and again, I didn't really, I didn't really, I didn't believe in heaven when I was a kid growing up, although I went to church because my kids, my, 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 my mom and dad made us kids go to church. Um, but I didn't really believe the stories at church. I just thought there were stories until I started having my own experiences. So, and then here we are today, I've been helping people. I've been teaching meditation for over 50 years now, thousands of people, 68 countries now. Uh, and I help people with specifically with death and dying issues. If they have fears about death and dying, or if they just want to understand more about the afterlife and what happens and how we come back, can come back if we want to, into another lifetime here on Earth. Do you want to share about your near-death experience? Sure. So uh, my near-death experience that I had, it was 1972 summer. And uh, I know definitely exactly when it was because I was going to intensive language summer school at UCSD in San Diego, California. And those of you who don't know, uh, UCSD is right on the ocean. It's a beautiful campus. Um, and you literally walk across campus down the driveway, or actually it was, it's like a, it's like a, it's like an emergency, uh, road, you know, to get down to the beach from the main, uh, road up top on the plateau. And so, um, you walk down this driveway and you're at the beach. So I went there with, um, somebody I met at registration and, um, there was nobody at the beach that day. It was a beautiful June Night, day in 1972, afternoon, clear blue sky, I remember, and nobody on the beach. There's never any lifeguards there. It's called Torrey Pines uh, State Park, if people know the uh, any, anything about the local, um, uh, the local environment there in parks and so forth. Torrey Pines State Park, there's a famous PGA golf um, course right up on the, the plateau that overlooks the ocean, 300 feet above the ocean. You got these cliffs that come down from the Torrey Pines uh, golf course in the Torrey Pines State Park. So now we're down on the beach, two of us alone, and uh, both of us having come from the East Coast, never having been in the Pacific Ocean before. Um, and uh, walked into the ocean, up to like my um, maybe waist deep or something like that. It was a hot summer day. So the first thing you're going to do is what? You're going to dunk underwater. So she's standing about, I don't know, 15, 20 feet away from me. And I wade into the water 
and I dunk and I start getting pulled out and I got pulled out into the ocean and a friend of mine who used to be, uh, he just recently retired as a, uh, you know, one of these sea captains of, a, of, a, of these huge freighters, you know, 200, 500, 600 foot long, huge ships on the ocean. So I asked him, I said, these 300 foot cliffs were about three, four inches hi, how, 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 how far out was I? And he said, oh, you were about two, almost two miles out. So within a matter of seconds, I was almost two miles out, pulled out by a rip current. So those of you who don't know what a rip current is, it's basically a river in the ocean. And they're all over the world, in the, all the oceans. But I'd never been in one before. I didn't know what it was. And when you're in a river in the ocean, you don't feel movement unless you see something that's stationary, like the cliffs <laughs> at the beach, getting smaller. Because it's like you're in a moving car. When you're in a moving car, you know, your cup of coffee or your, you know, your bag of cashews next to you is moving the same speeds you are. So in the in the moving car, so it's not moving relative to you. But if you look outside, everything's moving really fast, right? Same thing. So I get pulled out almost two miles and I get exhausted trying to swim back in because I stupidly, uh, I dumbly started swimming right back into the current. So don't do that. Swim at an angle to the beach because maybe that'll get you out of the current. And my body starts going down. So just like in the movie, I get exhausted. I'm seeing the surface of the water go farther and farther away from me <laughs> as I'm, my body is sinking. I'm holding my breath. And I, and I popped out of my body. I, that's the only way I can describe it. I left my body for a split second. Now, I probably would have left my body for longer if I had not been meditating for two years before this happened. So those of you who have been doing the math, you heard that I learned to meditate when I was 19 in 1970. And this happened in 1972 when I almost drowned. So I'd already been meditating for two years. Therefore, I was familiar with the experience of my mind and my body not being the same as they're not identified with each other. They don't, they, they, they exist separate from each other. So I've had that ex, those experiences off and on over that couple of years during my meditation. You know, when you're sitting there, you're unaware of body and surroundings. Those kinds of experiences indicate to you that those of you who are meditating, uh, you, you understand what I'm talking about. Your mind is not the same as your body. Well, when I was going down in the ocean, my body, physical body was sinking in the ocean. My mind popped out of the body is the only way I can describe it. I saw myself quickly and I knew that what was going on and I willed myself back in the body. So I struggled the four or five feet to the surface, took my time swimming in, stopped panicking, and which I was panicking before that, obviously. And I, I, it took me an hour, she said, my friend said, to, to swim back in. I passed out on the beach for a half an hour, exhausted. Um, so meditation saved my life. That was my nearing death experience. If I had had what I call a classic near-death experience, and if those of you have ever seen any YouTube videos or maybe you've had your own near-death experience tragically yourself, um, you know, that whole thing where, oh, you see the light, and, you know, maybe you talk to your dead loved ones, and who knows, various people have different 
personal experiences when they have a near-death experience. If I had had what I call that a classic near-death experience, my body would have been 100 feet down sitting on the bottom of the ocean, obviously not being able to hold my breath anymore, and I would have been biologically dead if I had a classic near-death experience. Fortunately, I'd been meditating for two years, and I knew what was happening at that moment, and I pushed my, my mind back into my body. So that thank you so much for sharing that because there is so much um, there's a lot of varieties of near death experiences. In fact, um, PMH Atwater, the great researcher, did a book that looks like it's eight and a half by eleven, and it's this thick. That's the encyclopedia of near death experiences. So there are a lot of them, but what they do do is make uh, allow people to get in touch with the bigger reality than yeah. the physical and exactly. uh, that that and you had already started that journey two years before um just being brilliant enough to choose meditation well um, brilliant. Anxiety. I, would, I would substitute the word brilliant for to desperate <laughs> I was I was desperate for help. I was so anxious. But yeah, and and the thing is, some people may hear my this experience and they say that's not an NDE. That's an out of body experience. Okay, whatever. Call it whatever you want. The, I I didn't even know what an NDE was until about five years ago, six years ago, when I was invited to speak at the conference that Kathy and I met each other at the IONS yeah. conference. So these are just experiences. So labels are irrelevant. Right. It's the it's the what you do with the experience that's important. Perfect, perfect. And that's a great segue to talk. Okay, so here's the first book again. And um, Calvin has a nonprofit uh, where he helps people. Um, you will be able to, if you go to kelvinchin.org, you'll be able to see all of his books and get links to them and see all of the ways that he's been helping people for, um, as, as a gift, really, um, to either do meditation where they can get to their own space of controlling their mind and um, truly to create reality, you have to have superior focus to, to really create the reality you want. So this is a part of that journey to then. This, and, you, and, you, and you've taken the class. So yes, you know, I've taken that class. I've taken the, the death, the near, the death uh, class. Afterlife. 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 Thank you. Afterlife yeah. class. I, I knew you were going to correct me. Thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I got a C plus now. Okay, well, I'm going to make it an A by the end of this. And and then and then I love Marcus Aurelius. So when you came out with this book, this was amazing to me because as we'll go through this, th this book is um, 21st century meditations on living life. So Marcus Aurelius, want to give us a little insight into who he was for the people that don't want to go to Wikipedia and learn? Okay. Yeah, so, so that book is a collection of 67 essays that I wrote uh, this lifetime in the la over the last, spread out, over the last 10 years. That book came out three years ago now. Wow, time flies, man. How did that happen? So that book came out in 2021, March, I think. 
2021, three years ago. Um, and it's a collection of 67 essays uh, on all different topics, uh, emotions, life principles. Uh, there's a chapter on meditation. And there's a, the longest chapter in there is the chapter on the spiritual, I call it, all kinds of spiritual topics, issues like free will. What's free will? What about destiny? Uh, what about life purpose? Um, you know, I, I have a, several essays on angels and so forth. Yep. Um, uh, different topics uh, that, that are fall into the spiritual category of things, let's say. Um, Marcus Aurelius was a second century Roman emperor. Um, and he's primarily known uh, as a philosopher, as somebody who came up and thought a lot about philosophical ideas to help improve himself. Uh, he was a Stoic. He was he, he studied Stoicism, which is an ancient Greek philosophy um, of living life. It's a very practical way of looking at life, et cetera, et cetera. But um, he's considered one of the, uh, well, he's probably considered today anyway, uh, the most well-known Stoicist philosopher Um Back in his day, he studied Stoicism, which had already existed long before he was born. Um, but today, uh, he is known um, very, very much so as a, as a, as a proponent of uh, very practical ways of looking and living life, yep. uh, is, the, is, I, is the way I would sum up in layperson's term, 21st century language, what Stoicism is. Uh, I, obviously, for those Stoicists out there who've studied it in detail, you know I'm very much simplifying it. But, um, and he was also considered one of the last five good emperors. Uh, some they, they actually that's actually a phrase historically that the historians refer to. Um, but his personality traits uh, come through in my writing of that book which is why I call it Marcus Aurelius Updated. There's a lot of parallels uh, you'll find in the way that I have think, I am, I've been thinking this lifetime and how he wrote um, in his lifetime 2,000 years ago. Uh, one of the things that he's famous for this time around, I mean, in, 21st, in the 20th and 21st century uh, um, world, uh, that he's famous for as an emperor when he was when he was emperor in the second century, is uh, a book called Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. So a little quick history on that, very short history on that. That's a collection of his own ideas about how he thought he should be living life. Right. That's why he wrote it. It's not a book that he wrote. It's a collection of ideas that he would write maxims he wrote to himself, some short stories he wrote about his life and so forth, about relatives that he had or teachers that he had and so forth. Uh, but it's a lot of a lot of different maxims that he wrote over his over about a 16 year period um, near the end of his life. Um, it wasn't meant to be a book. It was found, discovered around 800 AD by somebody somewhere. Um, and uh, over in that part of the world, and um, in Europe, and uh, 
And then it was collected and put together, and you got the Gutenberg printing press, what was that? was 1450, I think, okay. AD. Okay. And so somebody pulled it together around 1700 or something like that, and then called it Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. So it was never intended by him, by Marcus himself, to be put together as a book. It was a very personal, self-reflective thing. So it's a very um, revealing um, uh, collection of his own work that he never thought would be public. So what does that tell you? That tells you there's a certain level of authenticity and candor that exists in everything he wrote there because he never intended it for the be uh, publicly available it was for him his, his own personal self-reflection. So it gives us a very, very good idea, a very accurate idea of what his personality was like. So at the time, so uh, just so everyone knows, this book is a way for you to reframe your perspective of, of your life and get more enjoyment. Because that, that's the key to using this book properly. Yes. And, um, and what the next part we want to talk about is, um, is the impetus that you had to write this. Um, we're going to be talking about your next book where you, um, you explained your connection to Marcus Aurelius. But how, how did this start all of that connection to that, because we're going to be talking about personality traits and, yeah. and uh, past experiences. So do you want to explain how this, this downloaded to you so that it can um, even be more valuable to people, I think? Sure. So um, first, my first book is about death and dying and helping people. And that kind of arose out of the death of my mom. And uh, my mom died when I was young and she was in, only in her 50s. Um, <clears throat> so that's kind of the genesis of the first book in my helping other other people uh, by thinking about death and dying in a non-religious way um, and, and reducing our fears about it. That's the first book. The second book, the purple book that Kathy's talking about, um, the Marcus Aurelius Updated, really came about as a desire and objective on my part, as Kathy said, to help people live life. So it's not about death, it's about living. It's about how can we live life more in our continual present, which was where we were at. And um, those of you who know, we're gonna get into this in a little bit, but I have my past life memories, as I mentioned earlier, opened up in 1977. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But the purple book is about living life now, because we always live in our continual present lifetime now. And I say continual present because the present is always changing. So there's a continuity to our present. You know, the, you know, the beginning of this podcast is long ago. <laughs> there have been many, many presents between that beginning when we started 20 minutes ago and now. So it's a continual present that's always changing. That's why I use that phrase in case anybody's wondering. But the ideas in this purple book are, are have been gestating in me for 
many, many decades, you could say many hundreds of years, you could arguably say many thousands of years. And they've, they've grown and evolved and developed over that period of time. And that's what I've noticed within myself. And even just this lifetime, as Kelvin Chin, um, you know, as I've been thinking about these things over my many decades that I've been here on planet Earth, this lifetime in the 20th century, in the 21st century, um, I've noticed my ideas shifting, changing, developing, um, able to see more nuances, to think more deeply and profoundly and in a slightly different way uh, from a different perspective. And that's what that purple book really is a collection of, is all the different angles and ways I've looked at happiness, the different angles and ways I've looked at the concept of forgiveness, and the different angles and ways I've looked at the concept of cruelty and bullying and abusing people, and the different ways I've looked at that can cause us suffering where we can change the way we look at that in order to reduce our suffering. Because for me, personally, that's the way I look at my life anyway, is how can I reduce my suffering over these thousands of years that I've had experiences and memories that that you know have surfaced in me this lifetime, going back that far, how can I reduce my suffering to increase my happiness, my contentment, my inner peace in this lifetime now in what I call my continual present? That's the purpose of that purple book. Oh, well, I if you can see most of these books, I've got little bookmarks everywhere <laughs> on them because I just love them. Um, one of the ones that I have a bookmark on is spiritual insecurity. Mm. And um, that's that. I mean, the truth, the truth that's in this book that'll help ground you into a different perspective and a non-victim model of your reality is powerful. And it's it's an easy read. It's it's uh, you'll read it more than once for sure. And for people that have followed Marcus Aurelius' quotes before, they'll really like it because it's succinct. It's not, um, right. you, it, you don't have to wear special clothes. It's, everything about what you do is succinct. Actually, when you teach meditation, we don't have to learn another language, wear special clothes, um, play special music. We just learned how to meditate and get into state fast. Um, but uh, but this book, I highly recommend it if, uh, if, if you have not had spiritually transformative experiences and you're going through this changing time where you're really looking for how do I stay in integrity? How do I do the right thing? What do I do to do the right thing for myself? Um, because we're so taught, especially as women, we're taught to serve everyone else and put ourselves last. And um, this is a path to self-love in, in its own way. Would you agree? Absolutely. I would say path to self-love, you could say, if you want to use that language, that's what the book is completely about every essay. Right. Because if we are not taking care of ourselves, we cannot take care of other people adequately. Yeah, we can kind of sort of take care of other people, even if we're exhausted. But if we are rested and more wide awake, wouldn't we do a better job? And so 
that's just you know to to put it very simply um but yeah self love self care taking care of oneself to me and knowing more about who who we are each individually i don't mean just theoretically i mean what's about kelvin chin that makes kelvin chin tick why does kelvin chin like certain things more than he likes other things that's what i mean when i say know thyself know more about ourselves because if we do then we can align our desires better with our thoughts and our actions and our behavior and what does that mean better alignment between our desires what we want in life our our wishes our hopes our dreams our desires better aligned with our thoughts and our actions and our behavior is what we call fulfillment of our desires right and isn't fulfillment of our desires the what we what we also refer to as happiness that's 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 the route to, that's the path to happiness right I would like to add to that, that I think as far as being a conscious business, conscious business owner, a servant leader, this is one of the only ways you can stay present. Um, when, when you are aligned with who you are out of conflict, you are totally comfortable in this present moment and working and sharing your essence, your um, genius, from that space. And um, what's, what's happened is there's, especially now in this time of change, there's chaos everywhere. So if you don't spend the time to have a practice and to pull yourself into alignment, um, you really can't do what you came here to do. You, okay, you'll get minimal results instead of maximum results, correct? Exactly, yeah. 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 Okay, so next we're going to come to this book. And uh, in this book, um, Calvin does a brilliant job of explaining what he remembers of his past, past, of his past lives, which it remarkably he remembers. Is it 9,000 years? 6,000. 6, Sorry, I gave you an extra three. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're working on the next three, Kelly. like that. Well, we're on our way to the next one. Okay. And that's, this book is remarkable. And um, Calvin said it was the hardest one for him to write because he's reliving each uh, lifetime as he's sharing it. But do you want to talk a little bit? Um, I don't know if this will lead to 30th of November or talk to, but if you want to talk a little bit about this remarkable gift that you were given to remember without QHHT hypnotherapy and all these other techniques that people do, you were able to re reconnect to who you really are. Yeah, I think it just happened uh, for a couple of reasons with me. I, I don't think I'm special in, 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 a, in, a, in a particular way. I think anybody can access their past lives if they want to. And I'm not suggesting that you do do it either because it can be traumatic for some folks depending on what experiences you resurface and how ready you are. And what do I mean by ready? So what I think uh, helped me, and again, as Kathy said, this just spontaneously happened. It wasn't 
I did. I'd never been to a past life regressionist. I'd never had any workshops in past life stuff. As I said, when this happened, I didn't believe in past life. So why would I go to a past life workshop? It's something I didn't believe in. So it just spontaneously happened to me. I think the reason it did, in retrospect, I didn't think about this at the time. At the time when it first started happening, I still didn't even believe that they were past life stuff coming up. But um, I think for a couple of reasons. Number one, I don't have a fear of death. Um, I don't want to die, and I want to be here biologically as long as I can because I know why I'm here, and I know why I've chosen to be here, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but even if I didn't know, I want to be here with my loved ones and all my friends and so forth and everybody. So um, so the thing is, um, oh, it, I got to be careful. There's this thing. Um, if I if you do certain mo movements, it um, it does these um, the, the, the computer does these certain uh, like fireworks stuff. And yeah, I didn't. I've never seen that before. Yeah, I tried to turn it off on my computer, and it evidently <laughs> it, it turns off sometimes, and it does, and it, and it comes back on other times. It's oh. like, I'm, yeah, I've I've Googled this. This is like it's it's like a thing. So I got to be careful what I do with my thumbs, if <laughs> thumbs up or thumbs down or whatever a different well, thing. We're we're adding extra energy to this part of the yeah right. The fireworks goes off, and there's another one with balloons and stuff. I got to be careful. Anyway. So, um, yeah, if anybody, if anybody if they can send me a message on how to turn it off completely. I can, I know how to turn it off in Zoom. Anyway, um, so the thing is, I think it's because I don't have a fear of death. I think this is why past life stuff started opening up with me anyway. I don't have fear of death, and I don't uh, have a fear of embarrassment, I think that's a big one for a lot of people. Like, what's somebody else going to think about me? Oh, I said this and that. And like, you know, I said I had this memory and this memory and da da da. And and people are worried about the people thinking they're crazy or whatever. I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Probably lots of people think I'm crazy. Uh, you know that you know past lives. It's a bunch of baloney. That's what I used to think about people like me before 1977. But. So whatever, it's like people are going to think whatever they're going to think. It doesn't bother me. I think embarrassment is a big, big thing for a lot of people. What other people are going to think about them? And the other thing is, I, I remember a lot of things, Kathy, not just the good stuff. I remember some of the bad stuff I've done too. And so that also can scare people and shut them down because they're, uh, maybe embarrassed is uh, an appropriate word, but you could even think of some other word that they, they may just be ashamed of what they did in the past and whatever, and that will shut their memories down too. So I don't look at myself as a perfect being, and I don't think any of us are, and um, I think that actually opens me up more. Yeah. 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 Well, um, what what I want to share is the the <laughs> compilation of these lives and the understanding of them really made it easier to you to be solidly you. 
Yeah. Um, and um, so so let's let's go to the conversation about um, where our personality trait comes from, because that's what you had wanted yeah. to use for our talk today. And yeah. so so you remember these past lives and they start to make sense, except we don't really know about the alien lifetime. What what made sense there? I don't think. But the other lifetimes, which um, Sumeria, I mean, it's it's amazing. Um, the lifetimes, uh, Simon Peter, I mean, these lifetimes where you've had major roles. And in a lot of cases, you had major roles with people you know in this lifetime. Yeah, and, and they seem like major roles historically, but I've had lots of lifetimes peppered in there that I talk about in the book that there's not known historical figures at all. And the, the issue, history always looks back at, at, at people and they think, well, they had a major role. When you're in the lifetime, you're just doing your thing. You're living your life. You're teaching. You're not teaching. You're, you know, working, manufacturing something. You're doing this. You're tilling the field. You're doing, you're, 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 it's like the old phrase people, you hear people say that, you know, I, I, you know, I put my pants on one leg at a time, just like every other person who's wearing pants. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're a woman, you know, you're putting on your, 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 maybe you're wearing pants, maybe you're not wearing pants, but it doesn't matter. It's the point is that everybody is just like everybody else all the time, regardless. Okay. So, but where does our personalities come from? Let's talk about this. So, um, because really that's the thread that I've noticed over the 6,000 years is that, let me just make this summary statement first and then we'll kind of break this down. I've noticed that there is a thread of various personality traits, plural, that have continued through many lifetimes. How I've expressed them has changed and I talk about that in the book in some detail. They'll, they'll express themselves differently and they'll Sometimes there'll be more 30% this kind of personality trait in this lifetime. Oh, this that, that personality trait is more like stronger. Maybe it's like 70%, uh, you know, st stronger in the in another lifetime, whatever. But there are traits, there are threads that kind of run through uh, what I've noticed in my, all these, you know, we're talking a couple of dozen lifetimes over 6,000 years that I have memories of. I don't know if that's how many lifetimes I've had over that period of time, but that's how many that I have memories from. Um, so if you just think about it, first of all, just in one lifetime, in this lifetime, in our 20th, 20th, 21st century lifetimes, what affects our personality? So have you ever seen a friend or somebody you know uh, have a personality change. Something fundamental seems to change with them. Um, if you've ever seen that happen, or maybe you've had, had it happen in your own life, usually that's caused by some really, really significant experience, right? And um, yeah, sure, all, all experiences will have some effect on us. But if you have some significant personality change, it's usually something pretty significant, like I don't know, for example, this audience, you know what an NDE is. We've talked about near-death experiences or an STE. That's an 
new acronym that I just learned a few years ago, spiritually transformative experience. So, you know, as I said before, to me, experience is experience. These are just labels. But if those of you who are into these labels, you know, you talk about an NDE or an STE, it's a pretty significant, powerful experience, right? So you, you often hear people who have those types of experiences, we'll just call them a significant experience, having a change in their personality afterwards. Like, for example, they have an NDE or an STE and their fear of death goes away. They have some experience because they've had an afterlife experience, uh, perhaps, like what I called earlier, a classic NDE or STE experience. And that has changed their view of their own life in relationship to the universe and other lives and so forth. But even though we can sometimes have those what we'll call life-altering events, you know, experiences like that in NDE or an SDE. There's, isn't there something that's more stable that's running throughout our lives, especially for those of you who've never had an NDE or an SDE? Isn't there something that's more stable that's running through our lives, uh, personality traits that seem to be there already in us? It's not like, you come in with a clean slate with no personality traits when you're born. Some people believe that. I don't, that's not my experience. I don't know what your experience is. You can self-reflect, or maybe you have children or grandchildren yourself, or nieces or nephews if you don't have, you know, children yourself. Um, and you just look at these little kids when they're born. Do they come in a clean slate with no, no, no personality at all? I think if you're really being candid as a parent or a grandparent or an uncle or an aunt, you'd say, no, the kids, they have their own personalities. It, they don't have to have an NDE or an STE in order to get a personality, have a significant life-altering experience. No, we're born with this. I mean, and so, you know, just in general, when, just to be clear about what I'm talking about, personality traits, some, some people have a great sense of humor. Some people don't. <laughs> That's a personality trait. Some people are really creative and they're really, you know, kind people, uh, gentle people. Uh, some people are not. Some people are very crude, very rough, rough edged people. And yes, as I said earlier, can these can these things change somewhat? Sure, they can change over time uh, and they can be changed from significant life experience. But there is already something that's there when we're born, it seems to me. You know, some people are animal lovers. Some people aren't. No matter what you do, <laughs> they're not going to be loving animals. So, um, you know, and there's different theories about this. Um, and we don't, we don't need to get into all the different theories. But, you know, just quickly, you know, some people think, oh, it's because of how your mom treated you when you were in the womb. Did she play nice music to you? Um, or was she doing really mean, cruel things when she was, when you were in the womb? So maybe that transfers to you when you're uh, as a as a as a newborn baby, and you pick up your personality traits from your mom that way. Um, yeah, I can the parents have an influence? Absolutely, yes. All everybody, any anybody can have an influence on us, but I think those influences are relatively um, minor given what we are already born with. 
Can you have an abusive parent uh, who can really alter your personality and uh, your belief system on other human beings? Absolutely, yes. That's that's what we were talking about earlier. A significant uh, life event can have a significant effect on us. But what I think is 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 there is 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 there is an underlying basic personality that exists that yes can be subject to change, but that it already exists when we're born. At least that's that's what makes most of sense to me. And so, um, you know, how do you explain a kid who's born and two years old, two years old at two years old already knows how to play the piano and has never taken any lessons? I don't know if you guys have seen, but there's this viral reel that's on social media now. I can't remember which social media it's on. It's probably on a bunch of them. Where there's this kid, and I think a kid's in Russia or someplace, Belarus. I don't know where they are, but there's someplace. It looks like an Eastern European country. And the kid is about, looks like the kid's about a year and a half old. You know, about 15, 16 months old, maybe. Um, and, and is playing the piano like they've played the piano their whole life, like better than a lot of adults could play the piano, okay, who've taken piano lessons. And this is a kid just sat down at the piano, starts playing the piano. Where does that come from? Where, let's say, you, I, I know stories where the parents are not musicians at all, neither are the grandparents, nor the aunts and uncles. There's nothing in the gene pool is the point. There's nothing genetically that's allowing that kid and then not only that, but parents may not even be encouraging the child, but the child regardless could even be discouraging the child from playing the piano. And the child is driven, no, I am going to play the piano. Where does that strong desire, not just the capability, but the strong desire to come from? Back to what we were talking about earlier. I think it comes from the personality of the child and it's born that they're born with them. Uh, whether we remember these past life memories and experiences that we've had i think that's where it comes from okay so so i i am curious about this um before we came on we were talking about the how much capacity the soul has to affect this um current lifetime and uh we were talking about um because I said, I think I said to you, well, you picked your parents that we all did um, to have this experience. Uh, could you share a little bit about, because I feel that your experience with being in TM, Transcendental Meditation with others, kind of validated this whole work. Um, not just that you did the deep meditation, but it ended up that there were memories and recollections and awarenesses and strong friendships that still are along today that are lifetimes old. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that is a lot of credibility that you're not just downloading this and coming up with this. You have a lot of um uh, collaboration on this theme. Yeah, um, we, I think you're touching on soul relationships, what people sometimes refer to as soul plans, that kind of concept, and uh, soul groups or whatever. Yeah, I, I was involved with TM for about 10 years back in the 1970s, and then I left the organization because they got up, went off in different directions and got into all kinds of other stuff before, besides meditation. 
But you're right. There's a lot of people I met in that seminal period in my life when I was in my 20s who I'm still really good friends with and close friends with. They're on my nonprofit boards and various, um, you know, we have a lot of interactions still together today. Why? I think because we've been together in other lifetimes. And for some of us, we have recollections. We have independent, some of my friends I'm talking about, have independent recollections of us being together and we've compared notes with each other. So that's kind of like an outside kind of third party-ish look at things. Uh, one of my more recent friends, William Baldridge, I talk about him in this in, in this book. Um, he, he, he wrote a letter that's, I, that I, that, that's in this book uh, describing uh, something uh, that he heard about in 1973. So he and I became friends in 2020 um, and um, met through Facebook because we both used to teach meditation together in the 70s, but we didn't know each other. He was on the West Coast. I was on the East Coast. Um, and um, he tells a story that's in my book that he told me what, now four years ago um, uh, that he had heard in 1973 about uh, a TM teacher back then. And I was a TM teacher in 1973 when he, when this story that he recounted to me happened uh, where one of this, uh, one of the leaders in, in that organization who I'd never met before um, and still had never met, and he's since passed away, but he was very psychic, evidently, this guy named Charlie Lutz, uh, who was a leader in the spiritual uh, part of that organization, which I was not part of. I was in the science and education part, science, sports, and education part of the organization. So, um, but he was talking about some TM teacher who had had certain past lives that, um, I later started recovering my own memories of four years later in 1977 and 1978. And then in 2014 or 2015, I completed one of those memories that, that this guy, Charlie Lutz, evidently had, uh, which had heard about uh, in a lecture that Charlie Lutz had been giving in Los Angeles, California back in 1973. So those are kind of examples of soul groups, soul connections. Um, I later found out um, that Charlie Lutz uh, and I had a past life together 2,000 years ago. Um, again, I never even met this guy, still haven't met this guy, Charlie Lutz, but I heard about these things through Widge and some of uh, William Baldrige, his nickname is Widge, um, through William Baldrige and some of his friends who um, had heard this lecture or heard about these lectures that Charlie Luce was given in 1973. So those, that's like a soul group, soul plan, soul relationship overlaps over many thousands of years that kind of overlap with this lifetime that I talk about in my book. That's one example of uh, a number of them. Yeah. So, so the other example I was referring to was George. Oh. Was, um, the, uh, and that way you could also talk about the 30th of November if you want. Yeah. So George and I, so there's this guy named George Hammond. Uh, he's a chairman. He's chairman of the humanities section at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, California. 
if you want to Wikipedia, the Commonwealth Club. It's Commonwealth Club's been around since 1903. Uh, I believe the inaugural or the uh, the inaugural address when the Commonwealth Club opened in San Francisco in 1903 was given by the president of the United States then Teddy uh, was it Teddy Roosevelt. Um, you know, the Rough Riders, uh, you know, that of Rough Riders fame. Um, anyway, uh, was that the Spanish-American War, I think, or something? Anyway, um, Mexican-American War, whatever. Anyway, he was president of the United States in 1903 um, and gave that inaugural speech. <clears throat> George is the chairman of the humanity section. <clears throat> and... Um, George and I met. He's a he's a mergers and acquisitions. <coughs> Excuse me. Dry throat. Hold on. George um, and I met at Dartmouth College, and um, he's he was a mergers and acquisitions lawyer <coughs> uh, for for many decades. Um, well, I'm I'm gonna help you out. You drink some more water. Yeah. Um, so what I was referring to is that you and George, you kept having a dream or an awareness yeah. that kept popping up, and you're walking along campus on Dartmouth, and you talking to your best friend George, yeah. and you start telling him about it, and he finishes your sentence about it because right. he was there. So. Yeah. So yeah, that's what, what happened was that's remarkable. Yeah, what happened was we were on a meditation retreat in Switzerland. Actually, we we oh. met at Dartmouth. Okay. Um, we met at Dartmouth College as undergrads, but um, several years later, after we both had graduated and we were both teaching meditation, we were on a meditation retreat in Switzerland in 1977, and I had already had a dream earlier that year that I was very, very upset, but really upset, uh, emotionally more upset than I'd ever been in my life in that dream. And I was walking with George after lunch outside the hotel, behind the hotel in Switzerland, uh, just going for a leisurely walk. And I had mentioned to him, started to mention to him, that I had had this really upsetting dream and he finished the dream and that blew me away. So yeah, I described that in my book. It was a very weird experience for me because he knew the whole dream. He knew what I was wearing. He knew where I was. He knew that I was lying on the side of a road. He knew, he described everything in detail to me without me having told him. So I thought, is he reading my mind? George is not psychic because <laughs> he reading my mind. What, how does he know this? And I said, how do you know this? He said, because I found you 2,000 years ago. I'm the one who found you that morning. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, you know, for the last two weeks in these group meditations we've been doing in the hotel, you've been, you say you've been flipping over in your back. I can see you. He said he could see me. You know, we're sitting there next to each other. I flip over my back and I started spontaneously flipping over on my back energetically just uh, having a, a crucifixion experience upside down. And so he said, you've been talking about this for two weeks now. Um, you don't know who you are? I said, no. 
And so he had already had memories of who I was. He had already had memories that we had been brothers together. Uh, that he was my brother, Andrew, uh, 2000 years earlier and so forth and so on. But he didn't want to tell me until I started having my own uh, resurfacing memories, my own opening of my own memories. So that's when he said, oh, you know, you're Simon. That's so cool. I, I think that really would help me. There's something about being validated that you're not crazy, <laughs> that that someone else. <laughs> that someone else saw what you saw or felt what you felt and uh, could help you process it because so much of this is out of our normal, um, certainly our programmed reality from going to school. And I mean, you have a law degree, you, you know, even um, the postgraduate schooling and the meditation work that you've done internationally. I mean, so much of this is uh, your is is a shared reality, but when you go to um, where there's a group of other people that remember what you remember and can help you process it, that's big. I mean that that is really. I, I wish more people had that personally. Yeah, another example is my daughter and myself, my current daughter this lifetime. Uh huh. And um, I would sometimes in my legal career, you know, I'm at a reception or whatever, or I'm talking to somebody and they we're talking about our children. And, um, you know, I'm talking to another lawyer and we're sharing sto family stories, you know, about our children. And, 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 and I would often slip up and say, oh, my, my sister's at San Francisco State studying dance. I mean, my daughter is at San Francisco State. So I would call her my sister often, and then I, I then we went on for years, like five, six, seven years. Every once in a while, I'd catch myself. And um, one time, I called her right after I had had a phone conversation with one of these lawyers, and I had sl just slipped up, and I told her because I was I called her a few minutes later, talking to her about something, me going to see one of her dance performances or something, flying up to see her. And I said, honey, you know, I, I, I just had this phone conversation. I've never told you this before, but I slip up sometimes and I call you my sister. And she goes, dad, daddy, I, I do that all the time with you. I've been doing that since high school for years. I, I call you my brother. Wow. So then we, 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 we independently started connecting the dots and so forth. Long story short, I, um, uh, I, I connected the dots and realized she had been my sister about 250 years ago in, in uh, Prussia. Wow. That's cool. That's so cool. So, so for people that are, are trying to understand all of this, I highly recommend that you, if, if you're wondering about near death experience and you want to overcome the fear of death, or as so many of us are um, experiencing friends passing now or family members passing uh, this book may be a huge uh, help for you. The, the next book, um, the Marcus Aurelius Updated, uh, it's one of my favorites. You can see I got all sorts of bookmarks in it. Um, and it certainly will give you um, perspectives and um, paradigms of reframing your life. 
And then this book, um, you're going to start to, um, I, I wanted to read what um, someone said on the back. It says, this book is a brilliant recollection of lives lived in the past. It will make you think and possibly even trigger those memories that are stored within your subconscious. That is what it did for me. So, so I mean, this is a gift that will help you in so many ways and maybe help make sense of all the things that have happened in your life in a different way also because uh, we, we're, we stood in lines to get these bodies to be here right now during this huge time of change and bring all of those talents and skills and perspectives from those other lifetimes to work right now and share. Yeah, and I want to say something about the last point you just made in terms of and weave it into the personality traits. Because if the more my my experience is, and I made a list, I, I, I did this last night, Kathy. I'd never done this before. I went through all the personality traits that I that I talk about and I listed them all. And I put the page numbers of all the personality traits that I talk about myself that I've uncovered. It, it, that I talk about in that third book. And what has that done for me on a practical level? It gets, if you haven't figured out yet, one of my personality traits is to be really practical and pragmatic about how I think about stuff. That's not everybody is that way. I'm not everybody's, I'm not saying everybody should be that way, but that's one of my really core fundamental personality traits. So when I look at our personality traits, my personality traits, it has helped me live my life more effectively this lifetime and each of my lifetimes, the more I've become aware of what my personality traits have been. So to me, that's that's a value of understanding better who we are and how it can affect us now, as you said earlier, Kathy, is so important in our present, in the present moment. That's where we're living life. And so whether you believe in past lives or not, or whether you've had any past life memories or not, doesn't matter. Look, my suggestion is look at what the personality traits are that you that you know about yourself now and see if they align and make sense and strengthen that desire, thoughts, actions, behavior, alignment, or if they don't. And if they don't, maybe they're personality traits you want to work on changing and shifting a little bit because they're not written in stone, as I said earlier. They are malleable, but they change very slowly, is my experience, over very, very long thousands and thousands of years of time, many, many lifetimes. But we can change our personality, our, our personalities. We can change them incrementally. But it starts with an intention and a desire and then action to make that change if we see a trait that's really not helping us, that might even be hurting us in our effectiveness of living our lives. Perfect. Right? Perfect. You're always coaching, always teaching. Thank you so much. Um, well, we're out of time. We'll have to do this again. I always love talking with you and sharing these gems um, uh, and Seriously, guys, um, please share this if you know somebody that is struggling at this time. These books will really get them out of um, 
uh, out of where the dark hole they might be in and get them to a new place of empowerment because we are much more powerful than we know. So Kelvin, um, want to make sure everyone knows how best to get a hold of you? Yeah, the easiest way is just Google my name, Kelvin Chin, and uh, a lot of um, you know links will pop up on Google. Or you can just go to my my main website. I have four different websites, but you can go to the main one, kelvinchin.org, kelvinchin.org. It's a .org for those of you who don't know because it's nonprofit. I do all my work through my nonprofit organization. And by the way, along those lines, people can contact me for a free consultation from anywhere in the world oh, wow. uh, about anything that I do, meditation, afterlife fears about death and dying, whatever it is, anxiety issues and so forth, um, a free consultation just by going to the contact page on any one of my websites and just send me an email. Well, he's a great resource, you guys. Take him up on it. He's a wonderful mentor and a friend. Thank you, Kelvin. Thanks, Kathy. This was perfect. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Good to see you. Yeah.